Hello everyone, Justin Fakula here with another episode in my Stoic Philosophy series. Today's episode is titled Stoicism and Thoreau with Kenny Luck. Visit my website at justinvacula.com where you can find links to my social portals including Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram and see past Stoic Philosophy content on YouTube, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. My Stoic Philosophy series explores the tradition of Stoicism with goals to inform, empower, and help others benefit from the practical wisdom of ancient Greek, Roman, and modern thinkers, including Epictetus, Marcus Aurelius, and Seneca. For the Stoics, a main focus is pursuing virtue to attain a well-examined life through practical applications of philosophy, acting with good character, using reason to form accurate, careful judgments about the world, and achieving contentment. Stoic writers focus on many perennial human concerns and urge people to take action, applying what they learn to everyday life. Self-improvement is central to Stoic thought, strengthening and improving one's mindset. Kenny Luck is the author of Thumbing Through Thoreau, published by Tribute Books in 2010. A filmmaker, a photographer, a videographer, and a doctoral student studying human development at Marywood University in Scranton, Pennsylvania. He joins me today to discuss parallels between Stoic philosophy and the writing of Henry David Thoreau. Find Kenny on Facebook at facebook.com slash kjluck. Let's move on to our conversation. Thank you for joining me for conversation today. Thanks for having me. Can you talk a bit about your background, why you were drawn to author your book, Thumbing Through Thoreau? Sure. So the origin of this project really goes back to my junior and senior years in college. During that time, I had taken a class that had to do with nature literature, Mm -hmm. and it was really a survey of different nature writers, and it was everybody from like Wendell Berry, like more contemporary writers, to British romantics, to all kinds of writing about environmentalism. We actually did get into Thoreau a little bit, although not as much as you would think, because when I think of nature writing, he immediately comes to my mind now. But we did do an excerpt for one of the chapters in Walden in that class, and that was in the spring of 2005. And at the time, his work I thought was interesting, and I had certainly heard of him before. It didn't strike me in any particular way. So it took me about a year, and I would say by the following summer, around 2006, is when I really started to pick up the source material and start reading. To answer your question, you know, how this particular book came about was through that sort of education formally in that class, but also through my self-education of of going out and reading him more on my own. Mm -hmm. And uh, as I read him, read Walden that summer, probably two or three different times, different phrases and sort of these little aphorisms would just pop out at me as I read his work. And by the following year, I had gone through his journals, through all the, the printed source material and just compiled quotes Initially, just for myself, just to have things in some kind of compact order that I could go to and read. And then eventually that became the book. Right. Wow. So quite a transition there from personal study to actually publishing. And that was what, one of your first books or your first book that was published? It was. Yeah, it was my first book. It came out in 2010. So we're talking again, that initial class was 2005. The compiling started in 2006. And I was done with the compiling by 2007, early 2007. So for about two and a half, three years, the the actual work that I had basically sat on a shelf, it didn't go anywhere. And it was astonishing when the publishing process really started to take off, which was around January of 2010. And the book came out by the late spring of that year. 
it was kind of neat and interesting to see how something I had done, you know, when I was, I guess, 22, 23 years old, watch that kind of pay back a, a few years later. All right. All right. Well, let's get into some of the meat of the book and some of these quotes here. Personally, I find many parallels between Stoic philosophy and Thoreau's writing, quotes which you include in your book, living simply, reducing desires, knowing thyself, seeking contentment, and the ability to reframe your mind, improve your mindset, and better tackle life. We, we have a quote here, if one advances confidently in the direction of his dreams and endeavors to live the life which he has imagined, he will meet with a success unexpected in common hours. That's a great quote. Before I comment on that quickly, I, I agree that your interest in Stoic philosophy and the intersection of his writings, uh, there is some overlap there. And uh, all those themes, reducing desires, better handling life, improving uh, more of a positive mindset are all mm -hmm. uh, appropriate. That quote you just read, really comes uh, at the at the end of Walden. And, you know, it's the type of thing that taken out of context, you could kind of look at and, and picture it. And, and I'm sure it has been on some uh, inspirational coffee mug or <laughs> yes, shirt yes. or something. But it's great in that way, because it how compact it is. And over the years, I kind of look at his work and, and interpret it differently, which I think, you know, all great work has that ability, which is why it, it, it doesn't age ever. Mm -hmm. And in this quote particularly, in a way, I see it through the lens of being a millennial in a way because, you know, our generation, for better or worse, really wants a lot. We want to do a lot of things. And this, I think, kind of speaks to, to millennials in a way of pursuing your dreams. On the other hand, because life can be so difficult – and it's not flowery, and it's not kind a lot of times. Right. This kind of reminds you that, that that is true, and I think that's one of the most resounding things in or lines in American literature. Mm -hmm. and, and in Stoic texts, there's a lot of talk about setting goals, about having realistic goals, knowing your own skills, and okay, well, we're not going to say, and I'm sure that Thoreau wouldn't endorse it, oh, well, just because we think of something, it can be, right? There has to be some hard work, personal progress, and a suitable path, right? They definitely include Thoreau as being part of this school of, of you know, what's called romanticism, but in this case a different branch of Romanticism, American Transcendentalism, which is related to the, the British, and then even before that, some of the German, like uh, Goethe and, and individuals like that. That's exactly what he's saying. It's, it's you know, sort of a lot of Romantic thought deals with imagination and, and maybe sometimes superstition, but even nature. But I think that's what he's saying. It's not just that you're going to sit here and, and imagine. It's go out and do it and what you will achieve. Right. Will, will become what you imagine. And uh, I think that's been true in my own life. I think that a lot of success in a lot of ways is really unglorious. It's not very sexy. I mean, even doing a book, people look at you when you do book signings or <laughs> if you're lucky to get any kind of articles written about it or any right. kind of media. And it's easy to sit there and go, oh, yeah, that's cool. I want to do that. But to sit by yourself for days and weeks and, and months doing this what i basically call clerical work which is just sitting around and 
going through tax is not very sexy, but at the end it has a good product and certainly try to live that way myself. So Right. So the journey can be difficult. And here he talks about advancing confidently. So having a proper mindset about things and having self-esteem and evaluating your own skills, knowing that this is something you can do and maybe even looking into something before you sign up to do it. Right. And and the key word to me in that quote is is confident because you know, what is confidence in a way? I mean, we live in this kind of contradicts what I just said about millennials, but you know, we live in a time where especially maybe even in the dating realm or something, people are attracted to confidence professionally, personally, romantically. But I think that gets blurred a lot with narcissism or arrogance. And, mm-hmm. and I don't think that's what he's saying. Confidence, I've always said, is knowing what you're good at and being okay. Like just if you could think of a point, you know, getting a blank piece of paper and drawing a dot and then drawing a wide circle around that dot, that's kind of your orbit. Everything within that orbit is what you're confident at. And it's just knowing yourself and knowing your abilities and, and being okay with that. It's not pretending or putting on a show that you're you're somehow something that you're not. Right. And that, that won't work in the long term, right? If we have just this ungrounded arrogance or even much of arrogance at all and not having humility, not having a confidence worth wanting, some moderation. In it. Right. And I think that distinction is key. Uh-huh. All right, let's move on to the next quote here. As a single footstep will not make a path on the earth, so a single thought will not make a pathway in the mind. To make a deep physical path, we walk again and again. To make a deep mental path, we must think over and over the kind of thoughts we wish to dominate our lives. So that one is very, I, I think, stoic in a lot of ways. And one of the things worth pointing out, you know, a lot of his analogies and metaphors have to do with the natural world, which mm-hmm. shouldn't come to a surprise to anybody. But, you know, Emerson does that a lot. Thoreau's older mentor, contemporary in, in Concord, Massachusetts, where they were living and writing. That, again, in a way, can be interpreted and speaks to what we were just saying about, you know, you have to kind of understand fully what you're getting into uh, when you partake in any kind of goal setting in life. And the phrase, you know, as a single footstep will not make a path on the earth. And he's talking about a single thought doesn't make a pathway into the mind. So it's it's almost like this practice of self-realization. And in a way, it's really these philosophies, there's a lot of overlap, not only with stoicism, but also, and, and I think Thoreau was very aware of this, even in the 1840s and 50s, when he was really writing a lot, a lot of the Eastern types of thoughts like uh, Hinduism and Buddhism, mm-hmm. and particularly Zen Buddhism, you, you could kind of see the, the parallels between a line like that and, and some of the more Eastern thinking. Right. And here, it's a focus on mindset as well, right? What are the thoughts that we wish to dominate our lives? And that if we don't have confidence in ourselves, if we have some self-defeating ideas, right, these these can really sabotage us. These these won't be helpful. Exactly. And that's that's the idea. And, it, and it's funny how, you know, of the time, I have to say, his writings are, I mean, they're really a product of just pre-industrial America. And yet these things speak really well in sort of the postmodern, very fast-paced uh, digital world that we live in now. And uh, it, it's funny how, you know, things from that era didn't, you know, they didn't age at all. And you can look 
on a historical note throughout American history from just before the, the Civil War when he was living, the antebellum period, to now, and all the, the different decades of, you know, think about post-Civil War, uh, the opening of the West, mm-hmm. getting into the Progressive Era, the 1920s, the interwar periods, World War II, you know, post-World War America, all the social upheaval in the 60s. Throughout all those times, Thoreau was really claimed to be relevant, and particularly even in the 1960s and 70s in the early environmental movement, he was cited quite a bit. And I think that was, on a historical note, sort of a, a renaissance of his work. But he, he speaks to everybody at different times throughout throughout history. And I think that's interesting. Right. Perennial human concerns, wisdom in all different places applying to situations today that, yes, he has quite a following and people will read and think of how it can apply in times today. But yeah, maybe maybe this information isn't limited to one particular time that these are just concerns that people always have. It's simply part of the human condition. How should I live my life? Exactly. Right. All right. So on to the next quote here. Thoreau writes, I should not talk so much about myself if there was anybody else whom I knew as well. You could uh, almost hear the the sarcasm in that line. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> you know, that's a great line, actually. And I always kind of smile when I hear it. There's a lot being said in that one sentence. And, you know, that, that could be, I think, bastardized in a way. It could be, almost be misinterpreted for being like a, an arrogant thing to say. But he's really getting at something, I think, a little deeper And it's about the theme of knowing thyself, right? Mm -hmm. Which goes back to Greek philosophy. Right, right. And and that that really is, I think, what he's what he's saying in that line. So there's a lot packed into that one sentence. Right. And here we have the experience of ourselves, right? Others don't have that total picture. Others won't be able to see everything that was going on. Others might be able to offer insight and that can be helpful. So there's a a balance there, right? And that we don't want to be totally secluded or not take others feedback, but yet we can have these conversations with ourselves. that we have all this time, all this thinking to do. And this can be a productive thing to think about our condition rather than just not being reflective, right? Rather than just being impulsive. Exactly. And, and and this may come up a little later in the discussion, but one of the things about Thoreau, I think, is is sometimes he's he's misinterpreted. And that that happens with a lot of great writers. I mean, different people claim him for different things. I always think of I think I think his name was Christopher McKinless, the guy that the book and later movie was based off into the wild. Very briefly, that book was about a guy who in the early 1990s sort of set off and, you know, burned his, his social security card, cut up his credit cards, just went out and lived. But oh, right off the grid. Yeah, right. Really off the grid, you know. And at the time when I saw that film, I, I was kind of hoping, I think, I think he came out around 2007 or eight. So I think it was even before I had published this book. But I was very well aware of Thoreau at that time, and I think they even used one of his quotes in that film. McKinless, you know, I think he misinterprets Thoreau because I don't want to go as far as to say that Thoreau was the total motivation for him living off the grid. But ultimately, if anyone has read that book or saw the film, they know that he dies by himself in a bus. Oh, spoiler alert. In Alaska, because he ate the wrong bush or, or berries or something. At the end of the movie, he writes that, you know, life is better shared. 
or something to that extent. When he was dying, he like carved this into the the floor of the bus or something, and he died. And I think Thoreau would agree with that because even in Walden, you know, sometimes he's he's described by others as being this sort of irascible person who hates uh, society. But, you know, even in the opening of one of the chapters, he said, I have three chairs in my house. I'm paraphrasing. And he says something to the effect of, I have a chair for myself, one for whatever, and then the other for society. And he's basically saying, like, look, I am open to people. Getting back to what I said earlier, one of the other ways he's misinterpreted is actually in the political realm because he was also a a staunch libertarian and he's been claimed by libertarians on the left and libertarians on the right as well because he famously wrote uh the other most famous work he published apart from walden is the essay civil disobedience which most people know who study throw was later uh influenced uh mahatma gandhi and Mm -hmm. india's independence movement in the 1940s and before and in martin luther king's civil rights movement as well to recap i think are the two ways he is sometimes misinterpreted as being this sort of aggravated misanthrope and being this political savior on the left and right maybe he's a little bit of of all things but it depends how you look at him a lot of talk in the stoic texts about human being social beings social animals maybe we would say today in that we find some benefits from connections with others and there's a lot of talk in Seneca's work particularly on friendship talking about the benefits of friends about the need to have close friends and many of the good things that can come about with friendships so maybe a moderation and not being completely engulfed by the mobs as some of the stoic writers say or the crowds but yet maybe having a good circle of people and still looking for that social interaction. Most people would agree that uh, any kind of moderate view of of anything is usually a better path without going to extremes. So I I think that although his writing could seem a little pulmatic at times, uh, that's really the message in a lot of this. Mm -hmm. All right, we're here with author Kenny Luck of Thumbing Through Thoreau. We're talking about Henry David Thoreau quotes and parallels between Thoreau and Stoic philosophy. We'll move on to the next quote here. Most men, even in this comparatively free country, through mere ignorance and mistake, are so occupied with the factitious cases and superfluously coarse labors of life that its finer fruits cannot be plucked by them. You know, it's funny when I read these, some of these quotes. Again, this this book was published in the 1850s from somebody who's living in the year 2017. That seems like far back as the dinosaurs for some <laughs> Their view of history is so distorted. It's interesting how on key he was with his observations about people and things. And, you know, now you have a lot of detractors of technology these days people complaining about texting or how social Mm -hmm. media is ruining our lives and i'm sure thoreau would be saying the same things about criticizing uh you know those types of technologies now than he was then but it's interesting that you know being alive in 1830s and 40s and 50s he still found things that people did to basically waste their time, you know? Right, right. Maybe maybe that speaks to human nature more generally about, okay, whether you're holding uh, an iPhone, Facebook, or Snapchat, and you're wasting your time that way, or if you're just, were people doing in the 1850s to waste time 
whatever they were doing, he was criticizing and found sort of some fault in that too. So it's funny how much has changed, but how little has changed right over the the centuries (laughs) right even in seneca there's a lot of talk about questioning things and whether they really hold value and that many people will place their desires their effort their time their money in certain things but do they really hold value are they really worth it is it really worth our effort in that well shall we spend time gossiping about the gladiators and the chariot races in those times uh maybe today well oh well the celebrity culture is that really so much worthwhile should we be trying to live up to the standards of kim kardashian or something and look to please others or maybe we can look more inward and look to as seneca writes be our own spectator and seek our own applause you know what? Two thousand years ago, yeah, yeah. he's he's writing about a, centuries and centuries later. You know, eighteen centuries later, <laughs> in the yeah. ni- or nineteen centuries later, and still that holds true in nineteenth century pre Civil War America. And then you tie it into to now. So it's it's funny how these great people often say a lot of the same things in different ways, and these themes kind of repeat throughout history in a lot of ways. And it does make you think: Are they saying it because it just sounds like an outsider's perspective and maybe there's a a, a sort of cultish mentality among academic people or is it that they're just really tapping into something that's there and observable in society and it's probably i think more the latter yeah definitely latter i would say and also within seneca and other stoic texts there's talk of using our time well and that life is short right and chance can happen our life can end at any moment, for whatever reason, circumstances might change, we might find ourselves captured or tortured, as he is writing about, that might be some of the more extremes, but who knows, sickness may come on, we might lose many opportunities, should we happen to be disabled for some reason, a lot of things can happen, right? So valuing the time we have now, using it well, a call to action seems really appropriate here. Absolutely, I agree. All right, very good. So on to the next quote here, Thoreau writes, the masses of men lead lives of quiet desperation. Well, this is another famous one. You know, you, the, the quotes you picked are very good for, to discuss well, today. And uh, this is another very famous one you see repeated. This was from Walden again. And, you know, in, in a way, what he's saying here isn't a lot different than a lot of other philosophers. I immediately think of the German who came a little after him, uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, mm-hmm. uh, who would say things like this too, even even more critical of people and, and society. But in a way, like like a lot of things in, in literature, on the surface level, he's criticizing people in general. But then what he's really saying is, that most of us are unhappy, you know, I mean, it's interesting in a way that, you know, you see people that put on this front, it kind of talks to what we were speaking about a little earlier about confidence, you see Mm -hmm. people who seem to have it all, even and it doesn't have to be even the celebrity culture, but even our peers, you know, right, you go out to maybe uh, a drink some night and you see people that have uh beautiful women or men around them you know you see people who are very successful in their work but that really gets down to well are they happy when you see surveys of asking about happiness which this kind of ties into another project i did later on but a lot of people i think report pretty high levels of discontent in general 
despite the vast, especially in this country, the vast material wealth that we have. I mean, we are generally comparatively better off than South Sudan or any Mm -hmm. other place in history when, you know, even even if you're poor in America and I'm not saying you're you're going to be happy, but you may still have access to technology in a way because of how technology diffuses through time and place. And but people that still doesn't correlate with being happier with your life. That that's the whole point with this quote, I think. Right. It's a difficult question, this idea of happiness and the Stoics are seeing it mainly as contentment and just being satisfied with life and having a calm and serene mindset and being able to be resilient, to be strong. They're not looking for happiness based on pleasure or really based on any external things. They realize, the Stoic writers, that the external things are subject to change. They're saying virtue is the only good, really. There, there are these things outside of us they talk of as indifference, right? That they might improve our quality of life, but they're not necessary for it. One of the things I have to say about this in general, too, on a personal note, do try to live my life under these general principles. And it's I don't know exactly why. I mean, I know that it speaks to me. And, you know, I first read Thoreau when I was 21, 22 years old. It's now a little more than a decade later. I'm in a different time in my life. And of course, when you're that age, it's easy to be idealistic. I will say that right off the bat. Mm -hmm. We all face trauma or difficulty at any age. It it could come on us. But at that point, for me, I was very idealistic, very, uh, I don't want to say sheltered because I did see a lot, but but I try to align my life with these very high principles, which... I have to say overall failed in a lot of ways, but that doesn't mean you still don't attempt it. And what I'm getting at is, you know, I think, and I, and I could kind of talk about this a little more with some of the other quotes, but I, it's funny. I'm reading a book right now uh, that's called The Art of Frugality. And mm-hmm. uh, the guy is talking about, he basically raises the question and he talks about Thoreau a lot, but also the Greeks. And uh, he he basically asked the question, why are a lot of the great writers and thinkers and philosophers and moralists always advocating for a simpler life in a way? And there's a lot of answers to that question. And even though I don't particularly uh, adhere to any kind of religious doctrine, I mean, the most famous person in the West, Jesus of Nazareth, uh, also pushed for that as well as the Greeks, as well as... Uh, a lot of the Enlightenment philosophers and and afterward. And Thoreau definitely falls into that tradition. Yeah, and I think that brings us into our next quote here pretty well. Most of the luxuries and many of the so-called comforts of life are only not indispensable, but positive hindrances to the elevation of mankind. With respect to luxuries and comforts, the wisest have ever lived a more simple and meager life Well, that's a great segue into that quote. And that that is exactly I'm talking about in the point you just made. Again, this this idea of uh, what does it mean to live frugally? The author that I'm reading now, and I'm citing this because it wasn't my original idea, but he basically says that it's it's relative. I mean, how much is how, how low can you go like with a race to the bottom? Do you live this total ascetic life where you're off the grid or do you function within society, but don't fall victim to some of these traps? And I think mm-hmm. it's really the latter. I mean, just because I own a laptop and a phone 
and a car doesn't right. mean I'm necessarily materialistic. In a way, I look at certain material things as tools. I mean, even as you know, one of the things I do on the side, I'm a photographer. Well, photography can be very expensive. Lenses, cameras, it's not the cheapest activity to, to start off in. But I, I get into that stuff and I buy certain photographic equipment because I see it as tools to the to the trade, not necessarily for an end in itself, that I must own this. You know, as a, a sort of more mundane example, as you know, I try to eat healthy and I try to yeah. eat simply a, a lot of times. Well, in my kitchen, I have certain food prep devices, I'll call them, to make <laughs> eating healthy easier. One of them might be a food dehydrator where you could put in fruits and vegetables, dehydrate them, yeah, and, yeah. and they last longer. One might be a food processor. Another's a juicer. Sure, I own these appliances, but they're tools. It's kind of no different than if you're a gardener and you're owning certain shovels and rakes and things to cultivate the plants. It's the same way. Now, the, the reason I'm mentioning that is not because I'm again, need these luxuries to make my life all the easier. It's just tools for doing something. So you don't let what you own own you in a way. And I think that's yes, yes. One, of the, one of the big themes of his work is living frugally. Again, keeping in mind that that's a relative idea that, you know, you might be living simply. You could always find somebody that may not even own a, a, a cup to drink out of. Maybe they just use their hands. Is that person any less frugal than maybe you who, who doesn't get caught up in the materialism and the rat race? I don't think so. I think it's a mindset and it's something that, you know, even Thoreau, he wasn't necessarily living in complete poverty. He lived in this very simple one-room cabin that was a little more than a mile away from Concord, Massachusetts. He wasn't mm -hmm. living, you know, in, in a tent with no clothes. I mean, he still had a fire and a bed and a little desk to write, right. but he didn't overdo it. And that's the whole point with with living frugally, I think. Right. So once again, moderation and not letting our desires really take hold of us and really going so far out with our desires, right? As many people can never be satisfied. They always want more. They start compromising their own character and search for money, right? They might sell out in certain ways and really become corrupt. And this comes up a lot in talk about politics within the Stoic texts and both being natives of Northeastern Pennsylvania, we've definitely seen a lot of corruption in politics, people getting really greedy, taking right. bribes, indicted, we have national scandals, right? So as there's the desire maybe for more power, more fame, more wealth, well, that has an ability to corrupt someone, right? So maybe a more moderate perspective of, yes, not letting the things we own own us, not letting our desires take hold of us and being mindful of what we want and focusing on the things that are needed for a good life. Absolutely. And as a, as a closing point to this quote, I have to say in my own life personally, that is one of the ideas that still resonates with me from Thoreau's work that, again, I came across at a different time in my life that I still try to keep very well in the forefront of my mind about that type of materialism. Yeah, I like to have nice clothes and different things, whatever, but kind of keeping it down to a minimum, especially in our sort of, you know, late capitalist, if I can say society that we live in, where it's just buy, 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 buy all the time. And, mm -hmm. and I, I think that does, I really do as trite as it sounds, 
I think that does lead to the undermining of somebody's moral and virtuous inner life. And that is something I, when I when I see, even with food, you know, we, we have an obesity epidemic. Oh, yeah, right sure. Now. You know, definite harms have, with that. We have, yeah, we have unseen amounts of heart disease, cancer, diabetes. Those diseases alone constitute more than 40, I think, 40 percent of the total mortality in the United States. Well, part of that is there's a lot going on there. There's chemicals in the food. There's pe- people not having enough money. There's uh, these companies manipulating ingredients mm-hmm. to, you know, hit the sweet spot in your brain that, that you know, that you're going to go after it like a drug. But there's also this other frugal aspect that I don't hear a lot about, which is what's wrong with eating a simple dinner, a simple breakfast of just oatmeal and water or something? Right, why does right. it have to be – why do we have to be sold – all these luxurious because there's a price for that stuff. And I think in this example, I'm talking about specifically when it comes to diet, even there's something to be said for living simply, you know, with eating maybe a a raw plant-based diet, or even if you're eating meats, just not overdoing it. I, I equate dietary excess with mental excess. And I think the latter is really what Thoreau talks about, too. So this could be applied across the board, your spiritual life, your relation to society, and even your diet. Right. And that we might get some momentary pleasure, but would that be a really good thing in the long term that, yes, the overdoing it has a big cost and often unsustainable for many people, too. They, they want and want, but can they really afford it? Are they able to keep up that kind of budget? Their life gets more complex. It was even a quote from Seneca I read of when some people acquire more money, I think it was to paraphrase him here, that their troubles don't go away, but their troubles only change. Absolutely. And uh, if I may, if you don't mind, I mean, this ties into the, to the next quote we're about to discuss mm-hmm. when he says, you know, rather than love, than money, than fame, give me truth. Right, now, right. I've often discussed this idea. This is something, as you're very well aware, goes back to the dawn of Western philosophy about, you know, what is truth with a capital T? Mm-hmm. There's, you don't hear people talk about it a lot, maybe for good reason, because it's a very abstract concept, right? There's a difference between factual evidence and truth. I mean, even science doesn't claim truth. It claims facts through a process that can maybe change sometimes Mm -hmm. this this gets into more of an abstract idea but tying into what we just talked about that's in a way what he's what he's getting at here too uh again there's a surface level interpretation there's a deeper level interpretation of these quotes what we were just talking about with excess avoiding excess you know a lot of the themes coming up living simply and reducing desires that type of mindset that's that's what this kind of quote is getting at. And again, it's it's avoiding the temptation to just overdo it. And that's a very thin, difficult balance to strike sometimes because you know as well as I do, when you reach a certain, I don't want to say necessarily status, but you can use that word for lack of a better sure, term. Sure, sure. You reach a, a certain status, even in our case. You go to college, you get a professional job. You know, there are certain social expectations with a professional life, Right you clean yourself. You you, you don't have ragged clothing. You don't, you you know, you can get to work because you own a vehicle. I mean, but does that mean that you're materialistic because you have those things? I don't think so. I think it's just going above and beyond that where where it becomes an ethos where you're just out to buy the next thing or that's, you get caught up with sort of mindless gossip. 
that's the whole point of all this. And I even try to find in my own life that I try to live simply, even in my own aesthetic. You know, you've been to my apartment. I have mm-hmm. books and some art on the walls and some basic things. But I, but I'm a fan of this sort of minimalist aesthetic. And I think that's another thing. I, I don't know if anyone's ever claimed Thoreau in the art realm. Probably not. But uh, <laughs> but uh, the idea of minimalism as an aesthetic appeals to me as well. And, and, and so, sort of an outcome of that, his work also uh, teaches me things about that. Right. And, and a case for, yes, contentment and acceptance, which brings us into a quote here. Thoreau writes, however mean your life is, meet it and live it. Do not shun it and call it hard names. It is not so bad as you are. It looks poorest when you are richest. The fault finder will find faults even in paradise. Love your life, poor as it is. You may perhaps have some pleasant, thrilling, glorious hours even in a poor house. That could have been written by, you know, Epictetus or Seneca. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a very stoic thing. And, and I know you're well of this too. Contemporary psychological theories like uh, cognitive behavioral therapy teaches us that it's really the fault isn't the thing that you're looking at. It's how you're looking at the thing right. in a way. And sure. it, it's your perception of reality is really the problem. And we all struggle with that. I mean, I struggle with that all the time because, you know, sometimes people aggravate you. you. You know, you have a bad day at work or, you know, whatever it is in a romantic setting, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. But you have to kind of stop yourself and say, okay, I may not like this, but I can choose to look at this differently. And in a way, that kind of detachment is good because in today's world, it might not be a mug that somebody would cry over. It might be their cell phone that they drop and smash, which happens mm-hmm. to all this. You know, something like that. If you look at it like it was somebody else's, your reaction would be, oh, I'm sorry, but just buy a new one. And if if it's our cell phone that falls on the ground and smashes, then it's like, oh, my God, how am I going to connect to people or whatever? And we we go in panic mode. You know, I think that just with such a simple example says a lot about how we should perceive things. And I think Thoreau, through that quote, was tapping into that as well. Right. Yes, we can have a better mindset about things as yes, people are reacting differently to different situations that for some what we might consider as minor would be devastating for another person, just the way someone might look, or maybe they didn't say a certain word, or maybe they did say a certain word, or I I had an incident we talked about on a previous podcast about I pulled into a parking space and this man was telling me he he seemed quite angry about, oh, you parked in my space. And it was such a big deal for him. And I was thinking, wow, that really doesn't seem like a big deal for me. So maybe if we see that different people can react differently to different situations, we can improve our mindset and work to change the way we see things. Absolutely. And real quick, that it is amazing. Like just the example you talked about how people get upset about things. And you see that a lot in when I'm in, out in public, you know, if I'm standing in line at a restaurant or at the grocery store or even in a cafe, the things that people let push their buttons. And to be honest with you, I still struggle with reacting to that because I could see how absurd that is. Even in my own behavior, to my can look at myself and go, you were acting like an idiot. If I see somebody flipping out over a parking space, immediately you're like, what is going on? Why is this person getting upset? <laughs> but my problem is... How, how do you explain that to somebody in the heat of the moment when they're, right, they're right. pissed off over something? And that that's the, the struggle. But it, the, the first step is recognizing. And I think that's what you're, you're saying. 
All right. Well, we're moving to the end of the podcast here. So how can people find you online or buy your book? The first way, if somebody's interested in, in writing, I, I welcome any comments um, is through Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. Again, my name is Kenny Luck, so I'm on all three of those platforms. The book is available on Amazon.com if they just Google thumbing through Thoreau or my name with that or any combination of the two, the book will merge on Amazon. So if they're interested, they could purchase the book that way. But you're not the pastor, right? There's a popular pastor, Kenny Luck. Yeah, yeah, out there, that's, yeah, that's right. Yeah, for better or worse, there is one other known Kenny Luck out there who is a pastor from Colorado, I believe. So when right. my name gets Googled, he comes up alongside me. So it's it's good to distinguish the two. Right. So thumbing through Thoreau. So you could search. <laughs> Thanks for having me on. It was great talking with you about this. Today. All right. And finally, oh, thanks for coming on. Would you like to talk about other projects that you're working on? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, right now, over the last few years, I've been getting involved with photography and videography and documentary making, basically. Mm-hmm. And uh, right now, there's been a lot on my plate because I'm currently a uh, doctoral student. And uh, so it's tough to do a lot of my own work right now. But uh, I'm keeping busy by doing uh, photography and uh, different video projects. So I hope to be doing more of that in the coming months and years. And also I hope to return to book publishing in the coming months and years as well. And very good. And you're in the Northeastern Pennsylvania area now. So if people wanted to hire you as a photographer, a videographer that you're still looking for clients as well, right? Yep. And I I welcome that. And I appreciate you mentioning that. (laughs) Absolutely. All right. Well, thank you for your time today. And I'm sure we'll talk again soon. All right. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for more content. Visit my website at justinvacula.com, where you can find links to my social portals, including Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and see past Stoic Philosophy content on YouTube, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Consider donating if you support my work and would like to see more, for this takes time, money, and effort to produce content. Have a great day.